probably fell back into my groove of being slow. Okay. All right. Y'all, Mimi, are we? I think we're good. Okay. Josie, are you good? Okay. can have a seat. Well, good morning. This morning we're going to be in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. And if you're using a pew Bible in front of you, that is on page 1011. And so what I'd like to start off doing this morning is read the passage and then we'll just kind of dive right in. So James chapter 1, verses 2 through 8. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you this morning, I ask that you would be with us. God, build us up. By your word, uh, build up our faith, tear down our pride, tear down our trust in ourselves. Would you make us more like Christ as a result of looking at your word? Would you make us wise for the sake of your great name? And it is in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Victor Frankl was an Austrian psychiatrist who spent um, the years 1943 to 1945 in four different concentration camps, including Auschwitz. Um, And by the end of the war, his pregnant wife, his parents, and his brother would all be murdered. Um, Of his immediate family, only Victor and his sister survived, and he is most well known for a book that he wrote about his suffering entitled Man's Search for Meaning, and in it, um, a letter that he had written to some friends during this time period is is reproduced, um, a very heartbreaking letter, Um, and it says, My dears, I've been in Vienna for four weeks now. 
Finally, there is an opportunity to write to you, but I have only sad news to communicate. Shortly before my departure to Munich, I learned that my mother was sent to Auschwitz a week after me. What that means, you know all too well, and I had scarcely arrived in Vienna when I was told that my wife is also dead. She was sent to work the trenches at Trachtenberg in Brussels, and then on to the infamous con concentration camp of Bergen-Belsen. There the women endured terrible, indescribable suffering. I've had the indescribable depicted to me by a survivor of Bergen-Belsen, and I cannot repeat it. So now I'm all alone. Whoever has not shared a similar fate cannot understand me. I am terribly tired, terribly sad, terribly lonely. I have nothing more to hope for and nothing more to fear. I have no pleasure in life, only duties, and I live out of conscience. But no success can make me happy. Everything is weightless, void, vain in my eyes. I feel distant from everything. It all says nothing to me, means nothing. The best have not returned. Also, my best friend Hubert was beheaded, and they have left me alone. In the camp, we believed that we had reached the lowest point, and then, when we returned, we saw that nothing has survived, that that which had kept us standing had been destroyed, that at the same time we were becoming human, human again, it's possible to fall deeper into an even more boundless suffering. There remains perhaps nothing more to do than cry a little and browse a little through the Psalms. Ah, it's difficult to read. Uh, Victor concludes that suffering is unavoidable, but rightly interprets, I believe, later on in his book when he states that when we are no longer able to change a situation, just think as an incurable disease such as inoperable cancer, we are challenged to change ourselves. Unfortunately, though, the specifics of that change, what someone should look like, following trials remained a, a mystery to Victor. But in our text this morning, in James chapter 1, James teaches us how Christians should respond to trials by God's grace, and we are going to specifically be looking at the evidence of wisdom, the gift of wisdom, and the price of wisdom. So, um, that st so first off, the evidence of wisdom. James immediately begins this letter by discussing trials, which seems to imply that this was a big issue going on for God's people at this point in time. And James refers to those he addresses as the 12 tribes in the dispersion. I'm not going to go into great detail on this term, but it, it hints that these were likely Jewish, Jewish Christians who as a result of persecution had been dispersed. And throughout this letter, James refers to these believers as poor and even starving to death due to their wages being withheld by their employers because of their faith in Christ. And you know what James's response to these believers are? It's, a, it's actually quite shocking when you think about it. Verse 2, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. James seems to be doing all he can by combining the word trial with various kinds to say that there are a variety of ways that we can suffer in this fallen world, um, be it sickness, loneliness, 
bereavement, disappointment, or persecution, to name a few. But let's be clear on something. James is not saying that the only appropriate response to trials is joy, but that joy can and should be present. And you may be thinking, whoa, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be happy when my car breaks down or I encounter uh, financial difficulties, I, I get sick, or I, I have friends or family that ridicule or separate from me for my faith in Christ. Uh, the simple answer is no, because joy is not the same as happiness. And I, I'm going to say that again. Joy is not the same as happiness. So what is it? Well, the, the word joy in the Bible speaks of a state of being rather than an emotion. Joy may be defined as a settled contentment in every situation or an unnatural reaction of deep, steady, and unadulterated thankful trust in God. James is not saying that we should be thankful for the trial in and of itself. Instead, James seems to draw our attention to this wonderful truth that our lives are not subject to blind chance or the roll of the dice, but that there is a purpose in the trials and difficulties we experience. And in verse 3, we learn what that purpose is. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. If you have been in the church for a while, you've probably, you're probably familiar with what I'm about to say next, but the imagery here is of a smith working with precious metals. Um, testing metals would involve placing them in the fire, at which point the impurities would drift to the surface and the smith would remove them. The smith would continue this process of testing until he could see his reflection in the metal. And similarly, like the smith, God desires to be seen and reflected in the lives of his people. Um, James echoes what Peter and Paul teach elsewhere. 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And Romans 5, 3 through 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given us. Um, Many of you know I, I enjoy weightlifting, and for those who are not familiar with it, your, your muscles actually rip from the stress of moving the weight, and your body responds by healing those tears and the muscles growing larger and better able to handle the load in the future. And similarly, James tells us that the stress of a steady clinging to God's word, that's, that's what the word steadfastness means, a steady clinging to God's word, um, results in change, results in growth to our inner person, resulting in our being perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And while it is not specifically clear here in verse 4 what perfect and complete looks like, we know from the rest of God's word that the end goal 
is our being like Christ. But James, like yours truly, has put the cart before the horse and what he has just shared. He has painted a picture of what a believer who is responding wisely to trials will look like and now begins to address how this is possible. And that's our second point this morning, the gift of wisdom. So naturally, the question may come up for you as James thought it might for his listeners. Well, what if I don't count it all joy? What if I don't respond to trials trusting in God's purpose? And James answers what to do in verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. According um, to the Bible, we, we saw this in the passage that was already read earlier, but according to the Bible, wisdom is something that is very precious and valuable. And Proverbs 3, 13 through 8 describes it this way. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver and a profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. Long life is in her right hand, in her left hand are riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is a tree of life to those who lay hold of her. Those who hold her fast are called blessed. The, the word wisdom has been associated with our modern term skill, and even though that's not um, a direct translation of the term, skill implies what wisdom is in actual practice, excellence and quality or expertise in the practice of one's occupation, craft, or art. Therefore, a practical definition of biblical wisdom would be skill in living according to God's way of life skill in living according to God's way of life. Uh, one commentator adds, wisdom is not just knowledge and moral character, but the ability to know what to do even when the rules do not apply. Um, and James states in no uncertain terms that wisdom is not something we can achieve in and of ourselves. It is something that must be sought after in prayer, something that God must give to us. And James, later on in his letter, in chapter 3, verse 13, says, Hey, who is wise and understanding among you? It's like he's asking for a show of hands. And instead of focusing on the individual's credentials, theological training, or knowledge of the Greek language, as we might be prone to do today, James instead says, How are you living? And he says this, and, and he goes on in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 13 and verse 18. By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Um, James, C. James C. Petty has a wonderful book uh, entitled Step by Step. If you haven't read that before, I, I would really commend it to you. Um, but he, he states there, from a biblical perspective, wisdom is more miraculous and supernatural than any prophecy or directly inspired revelation. In this marvelous work, God progressively transforms sinners 
to think like himself with God's priorities, sensitivities, agenda, and love. That is the greatest miracle ever accomplished by our Lord, though it may not be valued as such by a church hungry for more tangible signs and wonders. So wisdom is not only beneficial to us, but ours for the asking. So what, what gets in the way? Well, verses 5 through 8, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I don't think James is, is teaching us in these verses. Believe 100% that you will get wisdom when you pray and you'll have it, a kind of name and claim it. Rather than being focused on the act of belief, I think James is trying to encourage us to remember who it is we believe in. Um, in essence, James is saying, my paraphrase, not a, not a thus saith the Lord, so take it with a grain of salt. When you pray and ask for wisdom, don't doubt that God gives generously to all without reproach, because if you do not trust his goodness, you have no stability in your life because you are torn between what you believe is best and what God thinks is best. You see, just as counting it all joy, steadfastness, and becoming more like Christ are all evidence of wisdom amid suffering, doubting God's character is evidence of being double-minded during suffering, which limits not only the receiving of wisdom, but I would argue the asking for it as well. Double-minded, or, or more literally double-souled, gives the picture of someone who is split between faith and the world, which leads to thinking, speaking, and acting that contradicts one's claim to belong to God. So how does, how does being double-minded play out in relation to suffering? Um, I'll give you one example. This is not the only example, but I'll give you one. The majority of people operate from this premise, and maybe some of you do this morning, that if I live a good life, things will go well for me. That if I live a good life, things will go well for me. So what happens is when trials come their way, they grow angry and discouraged because their modus operandi, how they live their life, is God, you are in my debt, and I deserve better than how you are treating me. A Christian instead says, God has been far better to me than I deserve. And even in the difficult times, have impenetrable joy. And that's what we will look at next, our third and final point, the price of wisdom. The price of wisdom. So how is it that God does not find fault? Um, or as verse 5 puts it, how, how is it that he would give generously to all without reproach? Because if I'm being honest, I have a lot of faults because for God's people, there's ultimately no fault to be found. And, and I'll explain why that is. I, I think it would be accurate to say 
that every gift you give to a person, I might get some pushback from this, um, but every gift you give to another person comes with a cost. If you buy something for someone, there's a financial cost. If you take time to actually make something for someone, there's a sacrifice of your time and energy. The greater the gift, the greater the price. And we saw a moment ago in James chapter 3 that wisdom is from above. Well, earlier in his letter, James states in, in chapter 1, verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. So where am I going with this? James is saying wisdom is a good and perfect gift. A good and perfect gift comes with a good and perfect price tag, a price tag that only God himself could take care of. So what was the price that God had to pay? It was the death of his son, Jesus Christ, for the sins of his people. Um, Joni Erickson Tata, in her book, When God Weeps, Why Our Sufferings Matter to the Almighty, um, depicts the suffering and death of Christ in this way. The face that Moses had begged to see was forbidden to see was slapped bloody. The thorns that God had sent to curse the earth's rebellion were now twisted on his brow. On your back with you, one raises a mallet to sink the spike, but the soldier's heart must continue pumping as he readies the prisoner's wrist. Someone must sustain the soldier's life minute by minute, for no man has this power in himself. Who supplies breath to his lungs? Who gives energy to his cells? Who holds his molecules together? Only by the sun do all things hold together. The victim wills that the soldier live on. He grants the warrior continued existence. The man swings. As the man swings, the son recalls how he and the father first designed the medial nerve of the human forearm, the sensations it would be capable, and the design proves flawless. The nerves perform exquisitely. Up you go. They lift the cross. God is on display in his underwear and can scarcely breathe, but these pains are a mere warm-up to his other and growing dread. He begins to feel a foreign sensation. Somewhere during this day, an unearthly foul odor began to waft, not around his nose, but his heart. He feels dirty. Human wickedness starts to crawl upon his spotless being, the living excrement from our souls. The apple of his father's eye turns brown with rot. He must face his father like this. From heaven, the father now rouses himself like a lion disturbed, shakes his mane, and roars against the shriveling remnant of a man hanging on a cross. Never has the son seen the father look at him so, never felt even the least of his hot breath, but the roar shakes the unseen world and darkens the visible sky. The son does not recognize these eyes. Son of man, why have you behaved so? You have cheated, lusted, stolen, gossiped, murdered, envied, hated, lied. You have cursed, robbed, overspent, overeaten, fornicated, disobeyed, embezzled, and blasphemed. 
Oh, the dirty, oh, the duties you have shirked, the children you have abandoned, who has ever so ignored the poor, so played the coward, so belittled my name. Have you ever held your razor tongue? What a self-righteous, pitiful drunk, you who peddled killer drugs, travel in cliques, and mock your parents. Who gave you the boldness to rig elections, foment revolutions, torture animals, and worship demons? Does the list never end? Splitting families, raping virgins, acting smugly, playing the pimp, buying politicians, practicing extortion, filming pornography, accepting bribes. You have burned down buildings, perfected terrorist tactics, founded false religions, traded in slaves, relish, relishing each morsel and bragging about it all. I hate, I loathe these things in you. Disgust for everything about you consumes me. Can you not feel my wrath? Of course, the son is innocent. He is blamelessness itself. The father knows this, but the divine pair have an agreement and the unthinkable must now take place. Jesus will be treated as if personally responsible for every sin ever committed. And the father watches as his heart's treasure, the mirror image of himself, sinks drowning into raw liquid sin. Jehovah's stored rage against humankind from every century explodes in a single direction. Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? But heaven stops its ears. The sun stares up at the one who cannot, who will not reach down or reply. The Trinity planned it. The son had endured it. The spirit enabled him. The father rejected the son whom he loved. Jesus, the God-man from Nazareth, perished. The father accepted his sacrifice for sin and was satisfied. The rescue was accomplished. Um, I know I've said a lot this morning, but if, if you remember nothing else from what I say, please remember this. God gives freely to his people because he has suffered fully for his people. God gives freely salvation, sanctification, wisdom because he has suffered fully for his people. As we wrap up this morning, it could be that you have listened to what I have had to say, but you still don't know if, if you are accepted by God or are unsure if you are one that he finds no fault with. Um, if that's you this morning, I would invite you to, to talk with either myself, Pastor Justin, Landon, um, or Ken following the service. On the other hand, it could be that you find yourself going through the fire. So what promises can you cling to? Uh, for a more in-depth look at what I'm about to say, I would refer you to an excellent article entitled How to Suffer Well, Three Ways to Prepare Now by Marshall Siegel. So here, here are a few things to do. Imagine what waits for you, lean into one another all the more, and remember you are not alone. And I'll br briefly discuss each of these. First off, imagine what waits for you. Suffering, thankfully, is not ultimate, although it may feel unending in the present. Even if the trials we face were to continue to our death, it is but a moment in light of eternity. 
Randy Alcorn um, has known his share of suffering, both personally and most recently in walking with his wife through a terrible war with cancer, and he endures with her by imagining all that is kept in heaven for him. And he says this, anticipating heaven doesn't eliminate pain, but it lessens it and puts it in perspective. Meditating on heaven is a great pain reliever. It reminds us that suffering and death are temporary conditions. Our existence will not end in suffering and death. They are but a gateway to our eternal life and unending joy. So imagine what waits for you. Secondly, lean into one another all the more. Suffering has a way of isolating us, um, making us feel like nobody can relate, similar to what Viktor Frankl uh, shared at the outset of our time together. Um, you may have the impulse to get away and focus on your own grief and healing, but God comforts us, strengthens, strengthens us, heals us, and makes us whole, not, a, not often a corner by ourselves, but often as part of his body. Lean into the people God has given you, and all the more when you feel weak, fragile, and beaten down. And finally, you are not alone. Uh, God has given his people this wonderful promise. Never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. And Romans 8, 38 through 39 builds on this promise by saying, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So again, imagine what waits for you. Lean into others all the more, and remember you are not alone. And I'll close with this. Um, attorney Horatio Spafford and his wife, Anna, had a wonderful family of four daughters. Tragically, the Great Chicago Fire destroyed most of his business in 1871, and then two years later, his wife and four daughters were aboard the ocean liner uh, Ville du Havre when it was struck by another vessel. All four daughters drowned. His wife survived, and nine days later, um, he was completely unaware, nine days later, was able to finally telegraph him with one question. Saved alone, what shall I do? Spafford took the next available ship to join his wife. During the passage, the captain of the ship notified Spafford they were crossing the place where the Ville du Havre had sunk. And after those moments of reflection over the course of the rest of his journey, Spafford penned the hymn, It is well with my soul. When sorrows like sea billows roll, though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. May God teach us that whatever our lot, we can say it is well. And may we become more like Christ from these momentary burdens. Let's pray. Father, I confess to you um, that all too often I, I don't seek wisdom in the midst of my trials and difficulties. I don't lean into, into your people like I should. 
Um, and I don't remember that I have a Savior and Lord who has suffered on my behalf. I pray that you would grant me wisdom, that you would grant your people here today wisdom in the midst of the trials that they may be experiencing. I pray that as we go from this place, we would be encouraged and that you would help us, Lord, um, help us to know you more and help us to be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. And it is in your son Jesus' name. Amen.